Why Do We Sound So Good? Because we're at Dead Aunt Thelma's studio and Mike Moore is engineering for us. Thanks, Dead Aunt Thelma's. Thanks, Mike. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Adventures in Artslandia. I'm Susanna Mars, and I am sitting across from Tyler Neist, who is a composer, a violinist. I met him doing Fiddler on the Roof. He was a fiddler on the roof when I met him. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I uh, saw an email blast about your upcoming piece, and we talked about your prior piece together, Mm -hmm. and I was so intrigued about what you were doing. Uh, The piece is called On Being Water. It's going to be at the vault in Hillsboro. It's going to open on August 30th, three Mm -hmm. performances, August 30th, 31st, and September 1st. It's really coming up. Yeah, the deadline's approaching, and I'm feeling the heat for sure. I bet. <laughs> lots of things to get done. Well, as a composer, you know, you ideate this piece, and then it starts to come to fruition. So have did you come to an end point creatively, and now it's mounting this piece, or are you simultaneously creating while you're mounting and putting it into the space? It's a, it's a little bit of both. Uh, there's a lot of prep work that needs to be done for a show like this because there's a lot of technology infrastructure that needs to be in place ahead of time. Well, can you explain that? Because yeah. I have prior knowledge of what you're doing and right. probably people are, who are listening don't. So this show, um, On Being Water, is a immersive multimedia experience, meaning there's going to be projections on all sides of you and there's going to be sound on all sides of you. So we're doing something called ambisonics, and we're surrounding the audience in um, 30 to 32 speakers. So there'll be, if you describe a circle around yourself, there's going to be a speaker, you know, within a given angle all around you, and we're going to have four speakers on top. So Mm. it's called sound spatialization, essentially. We're going to be able to send sound images all around the audience and spatialize them to create different musical effects. Mm. So for example, we might start a sound here and it might sort of sunrise up and then sunset behind you. And then that might interact with another sound that starts off to your left that sunrises up and sunsets over here. So not only do I have to think about as a composer what notes I'm putting on the page and who I'm giving them to, I have to now also think three-dimensionally. Mm-hmm. So where is the sound going to be? How is it going to interact uh, with the audience spatially? Is it in the round? I mean, I obviously... it's The audience is in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things... So ambisonics is specifically a field of study that has to do with sound spatialization. And people do their dissertations on this kind of topic. And it works best when the audience is right in the middle because you're basically surrounding people in a half sphere mm-hmm. and, and using that half sphere of speakers to create uh, sound impressions and locations. Um, so the audience is going to be in the center, surrounded by speakers, speakers on top, all around. Uh, the stage is going to be um, outside of the dome, basically, uh, in order to allow for no feedback from the microphones, et cetera. But, Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of the setup. So what can an audience member expect if they're sitting in the middle? What are they going to see? What is your hope for them? You're going to experience sound and imagery literally enveloping you and rippling around the room. And 
I don't know if you're familiar with Pauline Oliveris' work, but uh, the Deep Listening Institute and, and that feeling that her music evokes is definitely something that I'm shooting for. The sense of being bathed in sound, the sense of sitting with sound intimately in a way that you might not usually in a concert, right? So mm -hmm. that, because there's something interesting that happens as a composer. When I think about how to make something interesting or how to make a piece interesting, it's like, okay, I'm going to do this, and then I might change it up and do this. Well, the level of the tool set that I have to use here is more broad in terms of the spatialization. So the spatialization itself offers an interesting component and lever that I get to manipulate, right? So I could start a chord here, but if I move that chord around, mm -hmm. it's interesting because it's moving around, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, that sound can exist longer than maybe it could have if it wasn't spatialized, is mm. the point I'm making. Mm. So like, I have to think about that too as a composer. It's interesting to me too because sound enters your body. Yes. In that bone conduction yep. is happening within your body. And I think about that sometimes, especially as a singer and working with orchestras and so forth, mm -hmm. that we are inside of people mm -hmm. when we make sound. Yeah. But you don't think of it like that. You don't. I think that's such a good point, too, because in the show, being surrounded by sound, it's you're literally inside the sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's some of these little miracles of life, we tend to neglect the mm -hmm. reality of what that is. Yeah, you can feel it resonate throughout you. Yeah. yeah, and I read something recently about some studies that have been done about audience and how heart rate tends to gravitate to a, a general heart rate among audience. Oh. And I thought, well, okay. That makes such sense yeah. in, in terms of when I think about being bathed in sound, it's as though you're taking a warm bath. I mean, depending, mm -hmm. of course, on the sound, I would think you could also really unnerve people. To totally. That's, mean, one of, that's one of my worries, actually, because oh. um, this is my first ambisonic show. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, ambisonics is basically sound spatialization. And so... I. To get an opportunity to use 32 speakers doesn't come around a whole lot. No, so it's extremely expensive. We were able to get funding from the Regional Arts and Culture Council, mm -hmm. um, as well as some other funding. And so that is one of my concerns is like, how fast is too fast? Will the audience get sick? <laughs> what happens when these sounds interact in the middle? Will there be phasing issues? Where they, you know what I mean? There's just so many things. Right. It's interesting because I was recently at a movie and I saw a sign for another movie that said, in this film, there's a certain sequence that if you have epilepsy or anything like that, that yeah. it could impact you. And I mean, these things are entering your body. I mean, needless to say, there's so many uh, tales going on right now about what is entering our body and mm -hmm. what do we know and what do we not know. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that you're so thoughtful about it. It's a big responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. It's a little scary, too, because, um, you know, you don't get a chance to sit with a setup like this for two weeks beforehand and experiment. Right. There are places that do. I mean, there are schools and institutes for computer music that study ambisonics. So they have these setups and, and people can come in and study them. But... Mm -hmm. I haven't. I know of only one other system mm -hmm. in the in the Portland metro area that is at Portland Community College. Um, but other than that, it's it's hard to get access to this stuff to 
to really learn how to use it as a tool as a composer. So. What drew you to it in the first place? Well, this is a bit, a little bit of a longer story, but throughout a lot of my work, most recently, I've been working on things that are improvisatory in nature, um, in the sense that I'll give improvisatory and algorithmic in nature. So in the sense that I'll give the instrumentalists a sequence of instructions, like do this and do this, and you get to choose this and this and this. It's a very common technique in, in uh, composition. But I I'm, find myself drawn more and more to it. Like how can I create an atmosphere? How can I engineer an atmosphere while giving the instrumentalists an easy way to do it? Because a lot of times what happens as a person who plays new music or as a person who composes is as a composer, we get really clever and we go, oh, I'm going to do this and this and I'm going to do all these details and then it's really hard to play and you can takes a long time to rehearse and you can f just feel it in the players when you watch them because they're, you know, they're really trying to nail it. And I'm like, how can I get some of these same textures and moods and things without having that feeling go along with it and make it easy to do? Mm. So I've been trying to figure that out as a composer. Like, how do I give you a set of instructions and how do I give you a set of instructions that are going to be different every time they interact, but that yet I always know that the overall result is going to give me the mood I want, right, and shape and shift the way that I want it to. That's super fascinating in so many ways to try to put on paper your heart and soul because mm -hmm. not only are you notating a feeling or a melody, but you are by nature yourself, you're, you're Tyler, mm -hmm. and the way you play is unique to you. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to me imparting that as a composer because you, you bring with you a set of tools, right. a life. Well, I think, I think what you're bringing up, if I'm correct, is the idea that as a composer, tap into the tool set that a, a player brings, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that happens a lot in jazz. I think in certain kinds of classical music, it, it depends on the composer. It doesn't happen, right? Because mm -hmm. they give you really prescribed, do this, do this, and do this. And mm -hmm. depends on the composer, mm -hmm. right? I and think. your other artists that you're working with. And yeah, and how you're choosing to interpret it, especially if the composer's no longer around. <laughs> <laughs> Always helpful. Yeah. <laughs> So what instruments or what instrumentation are you using? We have live string quartets. So there's two violins, viola, and cello. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have, um, there'll be a, a keyboard and electronic sounds that I'll be running from um, the main uh, software station that's sort of running all the spatialization. Hmm. There's a lot depending on technical ability, electricity, you know, I mean, yes. <laughs> wow, I see your face getting a little pink. <laughs> I am, that's one of the things that keeps me up at night. I would bet. You know, I wrote all the audio software that's going to run the show. Holy cow. So, yeah, so there's lots of ways to do it. Mm -hmm. um, for a number of reasons, I chose to use something called Max 7, which is, used to be called Max MSP, um, but it's a... It's an audio programming software. And so there's lots of toolkits you can bring in to sort of run ambisonics. But yeah, that stuff keeps me up at night if that stuff crashes, if all kinds of stuff. So 
It's so interesting because just when you said that and when you talked about improvisation, Mm -hmm. there is preparation and there is performance. Mm -hmm. And I would venture, knowing you, that, you know, if the worst happened and there was some sort of crash of any sort, you know, you would continue, you would go forward, something would happen, there'd be, there are human beings in the room, there are people playing music. We definitely have fallback plans. I mean, it's like anything, right? When you're doing a stage show, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, you know, if you're running a, a, a stage combat scene or you're running a, a particularly complicated prop sequence, you kind of know in the back of your mind, if I drop this, this mm-hmm. is how I'm going to deal with it. Or mm-hmm. if I do this, I think the same thing happens in um especially when you play new music that's really hard you're like okay if we get off here <laughs> we're going to we're going to gather ourselves at this measure number and I'm going to cue it and we all know and then you go boom and you're back on right yeah like losing your place in a map totally mm-hmm. so i'm going to have fallback plans we're all going to have we're going to figure out the fallback plans and and like if the system crashes and i need to reboot the software but yeah, I probably won't happen at all. <laughs> so tell everybody just so they know your road to being an artist and a composer and a violinist and, you know, and how you got to Portland. So I went to Boston University. I majored in violin. I have a bachelor's in violin. And then I'd always been composing in high school I composed all throughout college. I took composition lessons. But I never was able to sort of say, hey, I'm going to do this as a, as a profession. Something At the time, something seemed more practical about knowing how to play an instrument, being able to teach lessons, mm-hmm. having the opportunity for an orchestra job. And, and it didn't hit me that I actually might be more suited for, for a composition major or something. But so I, I got... My bachelor's in that. Then I went to Manhattan School of Music, um, studied violin there with Mitch Stern and, and Midori, and still, again, composed, studied, got one of my quartets played there by the New Music Ensemble. And then came out to Portland. I did a year-long contract with the Oregon Symphony, which was quite wonderful. And then, So that brought you here. That brought me here, and then played with the opera for a bit, and then my wife and I really liked the area, so we stuck around. And then I just started finding that I needed different ways to express my musicality, ways that fit in more with the other things I was learning, like learning how to program, and and I essentially learned how to... I'm a full-fledged web engineer at this point, like architect and engineer. So I needed ways to integrate all of these different parts of myself. I'd done a bunch of theater, so I'd started doing... I started with community theater, then started doing professional theater with Bag and Baggage. Then I, I did Fiddler on the Roof, the Portland Center Stage. Um, played in the Pit now for them. So I have like this variety of interests. So Bridgetown Orchestra was born out of that concept. How can I take all of these different parts of myself, the technological parts, the theatrical parts, the musical parts, and create immersive experiences that have something to say? Um, that that, people can really connect to. So that brings us to the title, which is On Being Water. And so what is this piece speaking to? This piece has a lot of layers. It literally will follow the life cycle of water. Hmm. So 
As we all know from our elementary school days, and if we go look online, water comes out of the ocean, it evaporates into the air, it goes into the clouds, and it sort of rains back down into, back into the ocean. Just one of those other little miracles. Exactly. That we tend to take for granted. Exactly. <laughs> but I think there's also a metaphor there that water kind of follows the journey of our lives, right? That if you want to look at it from a, a sort of Jungian standpoint, which is that the water is representative of the collective unconscious. We emerge out of that water. We get formed into these drops that sort of get sculpted by our lives and then uh, return, right? So mm -hmm. that's the big message of the show. I think there's a lot of symbolism from the Tao that's also embedded in it. The Tao talks a lot about uh, the symbolism of water. Um, and funny enough, in some of my research, I discovered that there's a in Taoism, there's a school of water and there's a school of fire. <laughs> mm. So we're not dealing with the fire this time, but, um, so that symbolism of water. So there's sort of this esoteric element to the show. There's this actual practical cycle of water. And then the fact that the, the multimedia aspect just feels so immersive mm. that you're, you're, Again, like you said, in the middle of all the sound, bathing in it, feels very much like being in, in water. So I wanted to, to evoke that. Hmm. So I have a couple of fun questions for you. Go for it. If you could live in any era, and I've asked this to a couple other people, and they brought up, well, can we ignore history, some of the uglier aspects of history uh -huh. in, in these eras? Is there a particular one that you would like to live in? I want to go to the future so I can go into space. Oh, <laughs> that's a popular place people want to be right now. Interesting. <laughs> Please let me go to the future. I want to just be able to hop on a spacecraft and, I don't know, journey the stars. That's That would be fun to me. That would be pretty fun. Is there a cultural event or something that you saw, visual art, theater, dance, a, something that really has stuck with you that you felt has inspired you? in your life as an artist? I can't say that there's any one thing. But what I can say, you know, I think as artists, we always go to stuff and we have our critical hat on and we have our other hat on. And so sometimes you have to shove your critical hat away. But I know that for me, it's more gradual in the sense that I'll see something and I go, I like that part of it. That's really cool. That resonates with me. Mm -hmm. I need to bring that into something. And I'll see something else and I'll go, that's really cool. I feel like a collector of ideas. Mm. Um, and then I try and bring them together in one thing. So I wouldn't say there's any one thing, mm -hmm. but there's little things from lots of different things. Yeah, it's exciting to see other artists work. Yeah. Uh, start connecting the dots, the stories, where they're from, what what fed them to come to what they eventually made. Right. Such yeah. a mystery. I think that creative process is fascinating. Yeah, I do too. And and everyone's is, is so different, you know? Yeah, it's interesting to be able to talk to a lot of artists as I'm able to. Mm -hmm. I am finding all this conversation about diversity and how we are going to open our hearts and minds to the world being a diverse place. Mm -hmm. Artists 
seem automatically to know that. It's exactly what you just said. You know, you are in the world, you're experiencing the world, and you're taking things in and you're allowing yourself to take things in, not compartmentalizing. Mm -hmm. And I've just thought, I've always known it, that the creative process seems to be the door through which we should be walking in all areas of life, in all work environments. Mm -hmm. Because the minute you do that and the curiosity is at the fore, then so much falls away. I think that's really well said, yeah. But, you know, Mr. Rogers said it a long time ago, you know, just, whoa, how do you do that? They're just simple questions. Right. And I would add to that an invitation for people to get intimate with the creative process. Mm-hmm. That that intimacy, not just watching other people do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing to to watch, which I think is important to watch other people engage in it and experience that. But it's, then it's also another thing mm-hmm. to find where you yourself can be intimate with that process. Because I think, like you just said, it opens up yourself to all kinds of experiences and insights. And the creative process is not just relegated to artists. That's the thing, you know. I keep wanting to shout from the rooftops. I think the creative process is alive in every single person, no matter where they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see it when someone makes this amazing little piece of art on top of your latte. Mm -hmm. And it's everywhere. Yeah, it's absolutely everywhere. I mean, at the end of the day, the creative process if you want to be really reductive about it, mm. is about making a choice. Mm-hmm. Either you're going to do this thing or you're going to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And then after you make that choice, you go, and obviously there's more than, it's not a binary choice. Mm-hmm. But And you, you see the branches start to form and your choices lead you over here, mm-hmm. right? We do that every day. We do that in conversation. We do that with how we create our coffee. We do that. In so many instances. Right, and how you decide to do your life. Because mm-hmm. I'm often asking people, how, how's the work-life balance? And I think for, for many years, I thought that there were two places I was. I was at home or I was at work. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, life just really, it goes on top. There's not really, it's not, you, like you said, a binary question mm-hmm. or examination. Mm-hmm. It's how do I make my life my art? and vice versa. So you see that as you tapping your sort of creative self right, when for I, like everyday things. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's like the zen of life, you totally. know, just the, the art of everyday living. Right. You know, I'm, there's multitudes of things you can read about that, but I just um, taking that to heart is, would be really great to continue to encourage people to do that. I would venture at your piece will do that because when people leave, they'll feel permeated by something. I hope so. I hope so a little bit. You know, my <clears throat> my shows are always about starting a conversation with people and get, getting them thinking on multiple layers about whatever the topic of the show is. So. Uh, how'd you end up uh, hooking up at Bag and Baggage? Oh, Scott and I have been doing stuff together for a long, long time. It's really neat. Um, so they're, It's out in Hillsborough, just so for people who don't in, know. Yep, it's in Hillsborough. So... They do wonderful work there. Um, the very first show of their first, I think, official season was Comedy of Errors, and I was in that show. Mm-hmm. So that started a long sequence. I think I've done eight-some shows as an actor for them. And then I did 
a few musical scores. So I first I did a score for their Romeo and Juliet outdoor performance. Then I did a Kabuki Titus score for his Titus Andronicus um, adaptation. And then that's what really started this whole, wait, there's something here. I, you know, I talked before about seeing that little something and going, wait, I want to, there's something more for me to explore. So that combination of theater and music, with music playing such a prominent role in the experience, attracted me. And I'm like, wow, some, there's more here. Then I did a score Lear for him, and then that sort of led to Overview Effect, and then it's led down this road as well. It's so great because I think there's so much to be said for an artist like you who's worked a lot in one particular place, mm-hmm. that the audience comes to know you, mm-hmm. and you can you know, converse and talk about the work mm-hmm. and you have crossed, you're, you really do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So they've known me in different capacities out there for sure. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah. So on being water is going to be at the vault in Hillsborough, which is at bag and baggage, mm-hmm. August 30th, 31st and September 1st. Uh, get your tickets now. Please do. <laughs> it's good for all ages. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Adventures in Artslandia. Download the Artslandia app on iTunes where you're going to find a comprehensive arts calendar that's the best in the West. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Artslandia.